So let's get on the preaching. Uh, if you've got your Bible, you've got an app, you need a Bible, come grab one from the table. We're still in the book of Matthew, chugging through. It's my favorite book. It's really well named. Um, we can do this forever, in my opinion. And we find ourselves uh, in this series of parables, uh, this series of short stories that Jesus is telling about his kingdom uh, and what it's going to look like, uh, what the kingdom of God is, how it's shaped. And uh, the big idea today, I'll give you the answer right at the beginning so you can all kind of check out for a little while, is we can't let our false beliefs of Jesus get in the way of understanding who he really is. So we have all these preconceptions and notions and, and ideas that have grown in us, and we, a lot of them are false. We can't let those get in the way. They can't blind us to actually meeting, experiencing, and seeing Jesus. So that's what I want us to chew on as we go through this parable today. Well, let's read it today. Uh, it's in Matthew 13, uh, 24 to 29. I printed it in big letters so I can see easily here. So this is the parable of the weeds. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you were pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And pray for us. Yeah, Jesus, thank you um, that in your wisdom you gave us your word, the Bible, um, and that it's true. It's true for today just as it was true when you spoke these words, uh, and that it has power and sufficiency for us. It's active and alive and works at changing us. So, Spirit, I ask that as we chew on this parable together that you will give us insight and wisdom and speak into our hearts, um, you know, soften the hard parts so that we can see clearly this picture of Jesus. Amen. So before we dive into what, unpacking this, let's, Andrew did this last week, but let's just pause for a sec. What's a parable? Uh, so it's a short story uh, or a metaphor and really, they are used by teachers to make people slow down and contemplate truth. Jesus, in like three lines, could say what he's trying to get across here, but we almost glaze over it then, right? This parable makes us stop, slow down, and look at the deeper truth here. They also help us remember way better. There's a stickiness to story, right, that, that stays with us for times that we can recall back uh, when we need to and we don't have our Bible or just pops into our heads, right? Especially for the people, the original hearers of this, they would have been out farming all the time. Um, or maybe you're gardening and you start to think of this all the time. And it's just these daily reminders. So parable has that sort of power. And finally, they really help people get over their preconceptions, right? You approach things a little differently because you put yourself in the story uh, and you're almost tricked into thinking through a different lens. And it really helps us interact with truth in a more unbiased way. So that's why Jesus, he's an amazing teacher, right? We, we don't always think of him like that, but he's really good at getting people to think differently and getting truths to soak down into their heart. And he uses parables to great effect uh, as he does this. 
So in this parable, you guys are like, what's going on? Who's what? Am I a weed? Am I a wheat? Am I the sower? What's, who, who is all this stuff? So um, conveniently next week, there's a whole passage that explains this whole thing. So Chris is going to preach the same thing again. You don't have to come if you don't want to. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure he'll, he always likes to re-preach what I preach. So he'll just say, he'll be much meaner than I was. That's what he'll say. But it gives us a bit of a, a legend, if you will. Uh, so it'll be up on the screen there. That kind of Jesus explains this later on and gives this legend. So we won't go to his explanation right now, but we'll pull this up and just look at uh, what these words mean and what, who, is, who is who in this story, if you will. So the sower, the one planting the seeds or throwing the seeds out, that's Jesus. Uh, I know some of you probably started thinking, am I the sower? Am I planting good seeds and bad seeds? What's going on? Um, you're not the hero of the story, Jesus is. That's always the answer. That's another West Village bingo. Um, dab that one good. But he is the sower. He's the maker of good people. He's the one that puts in that effort and energy. And then we have the field. The field is the whole world. Uh, the trap for some people here is to think it's the church. The field is just the church, and there's good people and bad people in the church. Um, but it doesn't address the church situation at all. It just explains that the kingdom of God is present in the whole world. Uh, and it's, it takes into everybody. Everybody's into account in this one. The good seed. See, the good seed, they're the people of the kingdom. They're God's people. They're the Christians. They're the followers of Jesus. Uh, it's cool that they're, they're spread throughout the whole world, right? Uh, there isn't a picture here of a little Christian kingdom off on the side. Uh, the field is the world, and the seeds are all through the world. They're not put in their own special little plot. That's a whole sermon series for another day that I won't dive into. Um, let me see there's an enemy. And Jesus explains the enemy is the devil. Satan, the liar, the accuser, and he's sly, right? He comes at nighttime, sprinkles in some seed here, and we'll see why this seed was so deceitful and sly in a second here. Um, it was the weeds. The weeds are people of the evil one. They're the followers of Satan, uh, but in some ways they're just the ones that don't know Jesus, right? Uh, they're still in their sin, their brokenness, um, and just to understand uh, what these weeds look like. I, I got a quote here from a guy much smarter than me. Um, and I'll read this. The weeds were, you know, this is a picture that we're dealing with right now um, of farmers. We're not farmers. We don't understand this. But a common type of weed back then that looked just like weeds are this uh, weed called darnel. So I'll read about it. The weeds are probably darnel, a poisonous plant related to wheat and virtually indistingu- indistinguishable from it until the ears form. That's the fruit. Wheat don't have actual ears. It's just what they're called. Um, To sow Darnell among wheat as an act of revenge was punishable in Roman law, which suggests that the parable depicts a real-life situation. A light infestation of Darnell could be tackled by very careful weeding, but mistakes could easily be made. In in the case of a heavy infestation, the stronger roots of the Darnell, that's the weed, would tangle all those of the wheat, making can really select... That's why we see, he says, leave it for now. So it's this poisonous plant, right? That's the picture they're getting here. So the deceiver came in and he threw this poisonous plant all throughout the field. uh, And it's so indistinguishable until it's actually sprouted up and fully grown. Um, But you can imagine, you're out there cutting wheat and there's this poisonous plant in there. And there's the potential to kill your whole family um, for great destruction to happen. Uh, because of this evil plant. So you can see the seriousness of what the enemy had did, right? Um, So that's what the weeds are. Uh, Harvest is referenced. It's the end of the age. Uh, There's a time coming that the Bible talks to again and again and again uh, where sorrow and sadness and death and sin and brokenness will be removed. 
will be taken care of, uh, will be fully taken away. Uh, that's the harvest and the harvesters are the angels. Um, so in light of all that, now that you guys are super wise and knowledgeable, I'm going to read it one more time. So you can look through it through these lines. We'll leave the legend up there so you can kind of see it, uh, and we'll read it again. So starting 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while they are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and burn, bring it into my barn. So Jesus is starting to set expectations of what his kingdom is going to look like. He wants people to understand um, and chew on this, right? They have their own beliefs and expectations. And he's trying to correct them, to gently massage them to a true picture of what the kingdom is like. And to really get in and understand how this would have impacted the Jewish people that he was talking about, we need to look at what their history is, what their expectation is. Uh, this is a great way to think about how you read your Bible and how you interpret Jesus' stuff. Think about what the original audience had to say and know that God and his wisdom will have just as much profound impact for us. So let's look at the Jewish people for a sec. Uh, so if you're new to church and don't know, you know the first two-thirds of your Bible, uh, that's a lot. Who, well, you skipped that part. You always start in the New Testament because that's the good Jesus stories, right? Um, at least that's where I incline to go. But the Jewish people had a rich, rich history of interactions with God, right? Um, there was so much belief and entanglement and everything they did in their culture and their lives uh, to the story of the Bible, to what God had done for them. Uh, and I'll give you a really simplified version to help us get perspective. But uh, the Israelites eventually find themselves in slavery uh, to Egypt. So this is the story of Moses. And, and they spend 400 or so years in slavery and eventually this... Uh, Jewish son becomes a prince, um, and he goes on and you know, he breaks the slavery and helps lead the people um, out of Egypt uh, and towards this promised land. Take a while to get there because they're sinful and broken, uh, but eventually they do, and they get into this promised land, this kingdom, if you will, and start to reap its benefits. And then as this kingdom progresses and grows and God's people become more established, they get a king. Uh, and the best of the kings is King David uh, and his son Solomon. It kind of is this peak period in the history of Israel that they all look forward to. They look, they look back to their freedom from slavery, and they look back to this time of wealth and prosperity under King David and his son Solomon, the wise king. Uh, and this is the epitome of their culture in a lot of ways, the epitome of the life of a Jewish person that they all long for to come again. Uh, and, and as they go on from King David, human nature starts to erode their kingdoms. As things start to go downhill, God sends prophets to remind them uh, what it means to be faithful to God and promise them that one day a new king will come, a king that's better than David, uh, and restore their kingdom. Uh, and then 
Jesus' people, the last word from God they had was about 400 years earlier, the last book of the Old Testament. And so they find themselves in this period of silence, this period of not knowing and anxiousness, and they're oppressed again. The Romans have come in and allow them a little bit of freedom, but are really ruling over them. They have to follow Roman law. There's constant reminders of Roman taxation and soldiers and all these things. So they feel oppressed. They're anxious. They long for a new kingdom. Um, Kind of rebel Jewish leaders spring up from time to time and try and draw on this anxiety and say that they're going to bring the kingdom back or overthrow the Romans, and they fail. Um, But they're constantly looking. Who's going to be the king that comes? Who's going to save us? Who's going to return us to that height of Israel, that height of glory? And this is what they think about all day, every day. It defines their lives in a lot of ways. And it's into this rich history of expectation that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. That he's showing them something different. Uh, A guy named R.T. France, one of the commentators I read, said it like this. Jesus announced God's kingdom. And this would lead many of his hearers to expect a cataclysmic disruption of society, an immediate and absolute division between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. Yet things went on apparently as before. It's to this impatience that the parable is directed. They wanted the flash and the bang and the instant restoration to how things used to be, and they weren't getting that, and they were frustrated. Their beliefs, their false beliefs, we're actually stopping them from fully experiencing and seeing the kingdom and the king that Jesus is. And this is why Jesus used parables, because it becomes this important, powerful tool to help them see past that and start to grapple with the truths of the kingdom, to understand what Jesus is actually saying, that the conquering king that they longed for and were looking for, that was going to come in and destroy the Romans and restore Israel to the glory days, It's not the king that God's going to send. It's not the king that God sent in Jesus. He's completely the opposite of their expectations. And they're a little bit frustrated with that. But Jesus wants this audience to put aside their preconceived notions, their false beliefs about his kingdom, and just actually chew on who he actually is. Contemplate that. Read this parable a hundred times figure out who he is. And as I said earlier, this is actually not just helpful for them. It doesn't have just power for them. God's word is active and alive today and has power for us. This parable challenges us in much the same ways. It wants us to upend some of our false beliefs and look at who Jesus actually is and experience him that way. One thing, one problem that I find resides in all people, all Christians, as they read the Bible, is they constantly jump to, okay, so what do I got to do? What's the thing for me in this? How does this affect me right now? And we'll get there. We'll get to some of that application. But in my experience, uh, all good, fruitful reading of God's word starts with looking at who Jesus is and what he's done, right? Right? This book is not about us. It's not a self-help guide. Uh, It's a proclamation of God and his actions within human history, showing us who he is, his character, what he's done for us, and letting those things then define us, then show us who we are and our actions. So the first thing we're going to look at here is what does this tell us about Jesus and his kingdom? Who do we see God as? 
in the midst of this parable. And I hope that as we do this, I know as I did this, um, I was like, man, these are like worshipful moments. Uh, and this simple little parable about a, a farmer, a sower of seeds. And I hope that we will get to the same place where you'll see God's character revealed in these simple actions. And it'll cause you to just stop and go, man, you're good, Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, if you're still trying to figure out who he is, I hope the same thing, that this will give you a glimpse to his character of why all these Christians would do these crazy things for him, why they would upend their lives for him, see what he's like. So let's go through this verse by verse a little bit. He sowed good seed. It's the first thing we see the sower, we see Jesus doing here. We need to recognize that Jesus is the source of all goodness. He's sowing the good seed into the world. Uh, he's the source that good things come from uh, and that's amazing. He has that good intent, that rightness ingrained into everything he does, into everything he created. He wants the best for it, and he made it good. He made it wholesome and healthy and pleasurable and amazing. And on the flip side of this, that means evil doesn't come from him. And that's actually a contentious issue, probably not to people sitting in this room, um, but it can be really offensive to people that are saying, oh, there's no evil within Jesus. They'd be like, look at his people. They're evil. Look at the atrocities they've committed. Look at the things they do. Look at their selfishness and pride and arrogance. Um, <clears throat> and we just need to recognize that Jesus didn't intend for his people to be evil, but he knows that sin is everywhere, right? Like he, he built mechanisms into his church uh, and ultimately into the salvation plan because we need salvation. That's why we need it because we are broken. Um, and he died and lived that perfect life to deal with that. <clears throat> that actually leads to the ultimate good news of the kingdom, that the king's death atones for our sins. But, um, I just, yeah, that was qu just a quick aside that kind of struck me. I know I see that in my non-Christian friends and neighbors all the time, that, man, Matt, it's kind of cool. Jesus sounds kind of cool, but look at his people. They're so ugly and evil. Um, and there's some truth to that, but that's because we're broken, and we need to explain that story that, our creator, our king, is actually amazing. And the brokenness comes from us not reflecting him, from not living out of his goodness. Um, but Jesus is good. He's a source of goodness. The other part of him sowing good seed is the act of sowing. Um, salvation or goodness, uh, <clears throat> the ability to be in the kingdom, comes from him. The seed puts in no effort. It falls to the ground. The sower, the farmer, does all the work. You know, Jesus sows, he cares for, and eventually he will harvest that good fruit. Uh, so in recognition of our king, we need to acknowledge that nothing's on us and that we have done nothing to earn that. He does all the work. Uh, he knows what's best. He cares for us. He provides for us. Uh, he's amazing that way. And salvation only comes from him. So he's good. Salvation comes from him. Let's keep going. Uh, it says, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? It's actually pretty insulting. His servants come up, they've lived with him, they know him. He already said he sowed good seed. And they come up and go, you sure you did the right thing? I don't know if at work, if anybody ever questions your work, you get a little defensive, a little angry. Um, but Jesus doesn't. Um, he's really patient and understanding with his servants. Um, he gives them an answer, as we'll see in a second, that an enemy did this. Uh, and he answers patiently and calmly with them. 
So we get this picture, a little picture of Jesus as a patient, wise king um, that doesn't take offense easily uh, to these ignorant and somewhat offensive questions. And Jesus says an enemy did this. So he knows exactly what's happened. He's wise, he's knowledgeable. He's also opposed. We can't miss this, that there is in the field of the world someone out there opposing, sowing seeds of doubt and evil and discontentment um, all throughout and supposing the good work that Jesus is trying to do, where his kingdom is growing, it's coming up in opposition. The amazing part of Jesus' is he doesn't despair. He knows he's in control. He knows the outcome. He doesn't get angry uh, or, or fearful because he knows he's greater, right? There's a deep-seated patience and calmness to him um, that really resonated me, with me as I thought through that character in the story. Uh, and it shows this place of knowledge and power uh, and wisdom that Jesus comes from. So he answered, the servants go on, they say, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. You can't just remove all the evil, because you'll harm all the good. We can't destroy the whole field for the sake of purging the evil, because there's good fruit that's coming. And this is the most amazing part of the parable for me. He has compassion. He has compassion on both those that know him and that don't. He lets them grow. He lets the fruit of their life be evident. And if you start mixing these parables together with Andrew's last one, maybe he does some transferring and changing of the fruit and different those, those different things. But he knows what's best. He knows what's best for his own people to let them grow. He doesn't want to cause them harm or damage. He loves and cares for us with this amazing wisdom and compassion. It's really comforting to me, and I hope it is to you, that as you walk along this journey with Jesus, he knows what's best. He's caring for you. He's tending to you. He's helping you grow. It's a great picture of what our lives look like as we follow Jesus and the fact that it's not on us, right? He's out there nurturing us. Then goes on says there will be bundles to be burned. So gather up the, the weeds uh, and burn them. The band heard me say weed and then burn earlier. So now that's all I can get in my head, that we're burning a bunch of weed here. Um, thanks, band. Um, not that type of weed. Um, these are the, the evil weeds, if you will. Um, the poisonous ones. So they're being gathered up. It's time. It's harvest time. The wheat, the good, the good seed is born its fruit evil seed has borne its poisonous fruit and we're going to rip it all up, harvest what is good, burn what is bad this shows a just king it's an uncomfortable subject right, to think of punishment or dealing or destruction but the bad fruit leads to its destruction and a good king cannot stand for evil to persist right, Jesus shows his patience and compassion by waiting by letting things come to bear, to full fruition. But he's just. And that means that eventually, evil needs to be accounted for. That unjust action needs to be punished. <clears throat> he is just. And then in the end, he says, 
take the good wheat and bring it into my barn. Simple little phrase points to this amazing faithfulness of Jesus, right? He nurtured, he tended to the seed, to the field, he let it grow up. And those that are the fruit of the king's work, the good seed, the good wheat, is brought in to remain safe with him in his house, in his barn. They're brought into God's kingdom for the glory of Jesus. He's faithful. He's faithful to us if we know him. That's amazing. It's an amazing picture. Um, so what does this short parable tell us about Jesus? So this is like five verses. And it's, you can see the power of story here, right? Um, the powerful picture gives us of a, a good, patient, powerful, loving, wise, just, and faithful king. It's an amazing picture. Hopefully that causes your heart to adore him, to want to worship him. We should just call the band up right now and start singing, right? We won't, because we've got to make it a little harder first. <clears throat> but hold on tightly to that picture of Jesus, right? Because anything we talk about next, um, the challenge to our identity out of that needs to be grounded in that picture of a king like that, of a king who has those character, that character and does those things for us wise and just and powerful, how he cares and nurtures and tends to us, does what's best to us, gives us an environment to grow, encourages us. That's the king that we worship. That's what God's kingdom looks like. So how does knowing that king change who we are? What does that do to our identity? Because as we're exposed to that, it demands some sort of decision, a choice. If you've sat here for sermon upon sermon upon sermon and are still on the fence about Jesus, eventually there'll be a moment of decision, right? You'll have enough knowledge. You'll seen a picture of him to such an extent that you must decide. And for those of you that have said yes to Jesus, you probably got to still say yes every day, right? You still need to decide for him and his kingdom again and again and again. <clears throat> And if we do accept him, our lives start to change. We start to become you know, three areas here I want to look at. The first one is we can be patient with brokenness. So in our false belief, we look at brokenness and say, just get your act together. Fix yourself. I've got a few areas to look at here. first one was that came to mind was when you drive downtown or walk downtown or interact with anybody that's living in poverty or homelessness, what's your initial thought? What's the dirty part of your heart say to them? And it's, yeah, fix yourself. Just get your act together. Get a job. I can do it. Why can't you? We look at people with contempt because their lives look like laziness to us. This is a false belief, right, that people can fix themselves uh, and we start to ignore or move away from them because their brokenness starts to really frustrate us or maybe anger us um, or maybe cause us despair. So our false beliefs lead to contempt of the broken. Maybe a little closer to home. Maybe this is our neighbors. You know, why do they have to have the perfect yard? They're making me look bad. 
I hate that they worship their yard. If they just had the gospel, um, this is what Andrew says about his neighbors, who used to be my neighbors. Um, or maybe it's a, like they party every weekend, there's crap all over their yard. They're keeping my kids up to loud music. I wish they would just get their act together. I wish they would just stop ruining and letting their brokenness impede on my personal space. This is my castle and my bubble. I need the rest here. Get away. I wish they would fix themselves. Or maybe, let's make it really real. This is your community group. These people that we call family, that we're moving together on mission with, a family of missionary servants. And as you spend more and more time together, you can't help but see how messed up everyone is. It's always awkward when I'm talking about this and everybody in my community group thinks I'm just talking about them, but I'm talking about everybody and you guys a lot, though. Just kidding. <laughs> uh, but you start to see, you see how people parent. You're like, oh, well, I wouldn't do it that way. How they interact with their spouse. How can they say stuff like that to each other? How selfish they are. How prideful they are. And your brokenness can't help but bubble up to the surface, right? When you're in that tight community. In all these situations, we have a choice. We can choose to submit to the king and follow Jesus and be in his kingdom. We can choose to deal with it ourselves and live under the false belief that either we can help them fix it or the belief that our frustration and anger is justified because they're being lazy, not getting their act together. And we start to remove those broken people. We remove the, anything that makes us uncomfortable or impinges on our freedom from our lives out of this belief <clears throat> that people should just fix themselves. That it's okay to be impatient with them because they should know better. Or we submit to our king. Our king was patient with our brokenness. So we are patient with others. He enables us to recognize the brokenness that resides in all of us, right? This is where we start with this. We are, I am very broken. Sin runs deep through my heart. And the recognition of that makes Jesus even more amazing. Because he was patient with me. He is patient with me every day. Because I sin and I stumble. So when I get frustrated my kids or my wife or my neighbors or anybody I see because they can't get their act together, I'm forgetting the immense patience that Jesus had with me. I'm not responding in light of who my king is, what he's enabled me to do. Because he said, I will fix their brokenness. I can make them whole. It's not on you. You can't change that. They can't change that. Be patient with them. Love them in their brokenness. So our frustration looking at this and others turns to praise, turns to thanksgiving. Because when I see someone and they're like, oh, stupid neighbor, stupid CG member, why'd they do that again? Instead of that anger and frustration, I get to praise Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, that you're so patient with me. Just like you're patient with them, and I need that every day. Remind me of that again and again.
so that I can walk alongside them in their own brokenness, and they can walk alongside me in my brokenness, and together we can live out what it looks like to live in God's kingdom. So Jesus is patient with us, therefore we can be patient with others. It's the first kind of false belief that we need to overcome and the truth that we need to supplant it with. The next one, we can be assured of our salvation. So the false belief here, the truth, the lie that permeates our hearts is that I have to earn it. That I need to prove myself to Jesus. To show him that I'm worthy of his love and his grace. To push it into the parable. You know, the seed needs to stand up and do a little bit of the watering. So that it'll get a get an attaboy. Good job, seed. So to find out if this is you, some of you are like, there's no way that's me. Or some of you are like, oh crap, it's coming. Um, Ask yourself, is your life full of guilt and shame? Do you listen to sermons every week or podcasts or read a book and you leave and put another thing on your to-do list? You leave feeling this guilt and shame and burden of, I need to do more. I'm not doing enough. This person's going to think this of me can't go to CG. I can't tell my DNA that I haven't done this. I need to do more. There's this anxiety, this burden that comes upon you. And this could be you. You have the need to prove yourself. Or maybe you're really ashamed of your Christian resume. If someone asks you to tell your testimony, to tell your story, you have a panic attack. Because you're worried. You're worried what people will think. You're worried that you haven't done enough to earn it. You want to prove yourself. Maybe you're on the flip side of that where you can't stop talking about your Christian resume. I did this thing. I served here. I went on this mission trip. I gave this much. Maybe that's you. That's how your need to prove yourself works itself out. All those things, all those actions, all the fruit there is based on that lie that you can earn your salvation that you can help yourself grow, that you can bring good fruit in your life. It's a lie. And the gospel truth is that salvation, saving ourselves, is based on belief in the king and not our deeds. The freedom in that is amazing. For those of you burdened by that lie, rest there. Hopefully that feels like a burden coming off, a weight coming off. Your to-do list can go away because Jesus completed your salvation on the cross. His work is finished. It is grace. It's a pure gift to you now. You can't add to it. You can't say, Jesus, I only want 95% of that and I'll chip in the rest because that's insulting to him. That's offensive to him. Saying that his death, his perfect life wasn't good enough, Think of the insults. This is what you do every time you try and prove yourself. Jesus is the one who plants a seed. He's the one that brings it to fruition. I find that so often within the church and without the church, this is forgotten, right? We always want to add to it. We always want to do a little more. I sit with my non-Christian friends and they jokingly say, so I think I'm pretty good if I check off these lists. I'm going to go to heaven, right, Matt? I kept like, guys, you're missing the whole point. 
you can't do anything. You're not going to save yourself. Your good deeds aren't going to outweigh your bad deeds. That's not how the equation works. One bad deed taints the whole thing. Only way to fix that is for the king to come and let you have his life instead. So we can't save ourselves. So place your hope and trust in Jesus. Place your belief there that he's the only one that can bring you salvation. And don't taint that, thinking that you can add anything to it. It's amazing that God looks at us and sees the perfect life of Jesus. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Even though we did nothing, even though we insult him and spit in his face every day with our disbelief and our distrust and our worries and our anxieties and our pride, he still looks at us and sees Jesus. We can't earn our salvation. The next thing, the next consequence of worshiping a king like this is that we can be abundant in our adoration of him. The false belief in our life, something along the lines of life sucks. It's really hard. I can't wait till I'm in heaven. I'm going through the grind every day. It's challenging. It's difficult. Just want it to be over with. Maybe you're an if-only person. You know, if only I got this promotion. If only my kids behave this way. If only my spouse stopped nagging me. My wife doesn't nag me. Um, if only my community group was as committed as me. If only Jesus would do just this little bit more. If only, if only, if only. If you find yourself being an if-only person, constantly saying life is not quite good enough, you're missing the gospel truth that the kingdom is breaking in now. It has a reality right now. We have been saved. Jesus is renewing us right now. He's giving us things to celebrate right now. We can't take the position that life sucks until we get to heaven. Because we get Jesus now, we get his spirit now, and it's amazing. We can celebrate that Jesus has rescued us from death and brought us to light. To bring us new joy every day. We can celebrate and look forward to that he's preparing a place for us in heaven. And that's going to be amazing. And all the good things in this life, from feasting to celebration to enjoying creation, are all just little things that point forward to that new day. We get to have a little taste of them now. We can celebrate that our broken relationship with our Creator was made right within Jesus. That we can approach God. That we can be known by Him. And we can know Him. And that fills us and sustains us in ways that we can't even imagine. We can celebrate that Jesus sent his spirit and said, one better than me will be with you. And that spirit resides in us and teaches us, and comforts us and reminds us and empowers us to live out this kingdom life, to know the king and live in his ways. So Jesus' kingdom has come into the world now and we need to live in light of that. We can't forget those things. We can't let the concerns and burdens of life cause us to be depressed and down and pessimistic because God's kingdom is breaking in now and lives inside you if you know him and follow him.
the one question I want to ask in the end is, where do these false beliefs come from? It's a simple answer we give all the time around here, is sin. You know, sin is really the choice of choice to do what we think best instead of what Jesus knows is best. We see three types of sin that kind of get in the way here often with our false beliefs. And they are pride. We think we know better. We think we know what is right. Laziness. Don't want to put in the effort. We don't want to learn. We don't want to see what the king is like. And selfishness. We just want to be comfortable. Following this king requires change. It uproots our life in so many ways. And that means our comfort selfishness gets in the way at times. So how do we combat these false beliefs? We humble our hearts. That involves putting our pride to death. We pursue Jesus. Instead of being lazy, we look to him. We want to know him. We seek to know him in everything we do. We do that through praying often to him and through diving into his word, taking parables like this and just chewing on them again and again and again so we can get all the richness out of them, so we can know him well and get a complete picture because when our hearts are humble and our pride is dead, then our false beliefs can start getting out of the way. We can truly see him. And finally, the other way to combat false beliefs is to be with his people. In a lot of ways, this is death to comfort. Being in a community group or in a, you know an intimate community of God's people helps us see reflections of who Jesus is. It helps us recognize where our beliefs are off. Um, but it requires a death to our comfort at times. So that's how we combat. Humble your hearts, pursue Jesus, and be with his people. So as we draw uh, draws to an end, as we conclude, I want to start with, turn to the idea that we started with, right? big idea of this passage was that we can't let our false beliefs of Jesus get in the way of understanding who he really is. Can't let our pride and laziness and selfishness blind us to seeing a true picture of our king. And the amazing thing about Jesus is he knows. He knows that our sin is going to get in the way. So he leaves awesome parables like this to help combat them. But even more amazing, he sends his spirit to speak into our hearts, to reveal truth, to show us the things that are lies. So the call for us today is to humble ourselves, to get out of the way and ask Jesus to make himself known to us, to reveal where we're not believing in him, to reveal the areas of our lives where we still think we are in charge where we're impeding his good fruit. So I'm going to invite the band back up. But as I do that, I want us all to take a moment right now and just pray that. You know, ask Jesus to give you eyes to see and ears to hear what his spirit is saying and to reveal himself to you more fully. So just pause for a sec. Pray that in your seats. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you that you know that we are weak and sinful and blind, 
You gave us this amazing helper to come and remind us and teach us of who you are and what you've done and reveal to us your glory, your character, how you are king. So I pray for all of us that you will help our hearts be soft and humble so that we can hear your voice and be faithful servants in your kingdom to root out lies and replace them with your truths so that we don't have to do it by ourselves, don't have to be full of despair. We can be patient because you were patient with us. So Spirit, come, work those things in us. Amen. So now we're going to move to a time of response. Uh, We're going to sing songs because we just saw a picture of this patient, wise king. Hopefully your heart can't help but worship in response to that. We're going to give. We're going to give money. And this is a demonstration that we worship Jesus with our whole lives. There's no other kingdoms that we pay attention to or are a part of. He's our king. He can have it all. We trust him. We're going to take communion. Take this cracker and dip it in wine or juice. And this is a symbol, a reminder that we can only be saved by the perfect life and sacrifice of our king. We take that on ourselves so that God looks at us and sees the perfect life of his son. So let's respond.